Welcome to Step 1 Success Stories by Physio, Episode 10. The way that I used first aid was I would preview the material for our upcoming block over the course of like a week. For example, at the start of second year, our first block was GI, I think. And what I did was I looked at the entire GI section of first aid over the course of a week. And I didn't expect to really understand everything that I was reading as I went through it. But I just kind of wanted to become familiar with the vocabulary and basically what, quote unquote, the boards think is important. You're listening to Step 1 Success Stories by Physio, the playbook of those who dominated the USMLE. If you want to learn how to excel on step one and get into the residency of your choice, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join the thousands of others who have mastered step one concepts using physio.com. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode. Today we interview a first year pediatric resident named Greg Rodden. And to help me with this interview, I'm here with my co-host, Rhett Thompson. How's it going? It's going pretty good. You know... Earlier today, I was just reflecting back on last night where my little almost one-year-old girl just kept waking up all snotty-nosed and just crying and super uncomfortable. And I had this weird moment where I was, I was thinking back about how irritated I was that she kept waking me up. Truth be told, I don't have much to complain about because my wife, Jade, was the one that bore the brunt of that inconvenience there. But just thinking about it today, I just thought about how miserable my daughter must have been and it's just interesting, like in medicine, we always deal with, you know, sick patients and it's like never convenient for us, but it's what we signed up for. You know, I'm just thankful for that realization that I can reflect back on the fact that the person who's suffering, though they're like super inconvenient and we might be like super tired and their needs might be just causing us lots of sleep and stuff like that. It's, it's still, you know, it's still kind of cool to like, you have that opportunity to help people. And anyways, it's just kind of like this weird reflection and, and I just hope that in the future I can have that compassion in the moment. I wasn't like throwing a temper tantrum or being mean or anything like that. But, but I wish I had like the compassion like in the moment. And I want to do that with my patients. So it's kind of a cool experience. It's a good insight. You know, it's kind of hard to have your emotions in the right place when you get woken up by a screaming child at two or three in the morning. It's just like you're, you're in zombie flight or fight mode kind of at the same time. <laughs> and you're probably not thinking totally straight. You're like delirious. Yeah, totally. And then uh, it also just kind of took me back to third year, you know, during the surgery rotations where you're up for a full day straight, working there through the middle of the night. Yeah. Anyways, let's introduce our guest for today. So as I mentioned a minute ago, his name is Greg Rodden. He recently graduated from Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine, or VCOM, which is in Blacksburg, Virginia. And this past month, he actually started his pediatrics residency in Austin, Texas at Dell Children's Hospital. Another interesting point about Greg is that he actually hosts the Physiology by Physio podcast, and he does an incredible job. It's really fun to listen to him, and you know, this is kind of the podcast where we, we interview people and talk about step one experiences, and the podcast that he hosts is really more about like diving into you know, step one content, what, do you need, what you need to know for the exam, that kind of thing. So anyways, if, uh, if you haven't listened to that, highly recommend it. Go check it out. As far as the interview it was really interesting because, you know, he was a DO student, so he had to take the Comlex. But as a DO student, you have to decide if you're also going to take the USMLE Step 1. And so he knew he was going to take that. And having that knowledge really made his experience interesting. 
taking the USMLE and Comlex and knowing that he was going to take them far in advance. So he has a lot of good insights, and I think we have a lot to learn from him. So with that, let's bring him on the show. All right, Greg, welcome to our show. We really appreciate you coming on, and we appreciate your time. Yeah, I'm honored to be here, guys. I have absolutely loved working with you, and it's just, it's a privilege. So thanks for having me on. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you. So, you know, like we do with all of our guests, let's start from the beginning. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in medicine. Sure. So let's see. I grew up in the D.C. area. I had no idea what I really wanted to do in the future, but somehow ended up getting into Virginia Tech, which is like a fantastic school for undergrad and had a lot of fun there. I ended up studying nutrition and exercise and became a really serious student uh, in in college and uh, started to take my science classes really seriously just because I found that I really loved them. And I kind of knew that I wanted to use science to help people. And so that's kind of the classic med school interview question and answer that uh, I love science and I want to help people. So let's do medicine kind of thing. So I, I obviously had to find a little more creative way to express that. But I guess my school liked my answer and got in. I went Pathic Medical School um, called VCOM or Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine in Blacksburg, Virginia. And between undergrad and med school, I did grad school for a couple of years to just kind of explore a little bit and and learn a little bit more before diving into the the full medicine gig. Awesome. What did you do for your graduate education? Oh, uh, that's an interesting question. So I was in an exercise science type of program, but it was more like on the molecular signaling pathways underlying adaptations to exercise uh, in muscle. Uh, so that's like the fancy way of expressing it. But really what I did was I I built these like little running wheels for mice and tried my darndest to make them want to run on them, but they just did not want to run on them. So I had a failed pilot project that I presented for my uh, graduate school thesis, essentially. Honestly, for most people who do like master's level work, you know, you're, you're not going to be doing some true innovation in the field. It's really just learning the process of the scientific method and um, learning, you know, how to write and how to investigate and how to think critically. And that's what I found was truly valuable for my graduate education. Interesting. <laughs> Sounds like an interesting project. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to me as you were talking about uh, kind of that field and and the exercise science and response to exercise. I was thinking about that podcast that you did on like muscle activation and stuff like that, where you combined uh, some of those quotes from from one of Michael's physiology, physio lectures and, and your commentary. It seems like that's right up your alley. Did you feel like those, your grad school program helped inform your med school experience? A little bit. So I think one thing that really helped between my undergrad and and grad school, there was a lot of biochem involved in it. So I was I was really comfortable with biochem in med school, which is not the answer you hear very often. Like most people dread biochem, but I really didn't have that hard of a time just because I already had a mental framework within which to work. So I didn't have to expend nearly as much energy learning biochem as, as I did having to learn like anatomy kind of kind of thing. And then yeah, so for the first episode of med school fizz, I decided to do like a skeletal muscle 
physiology type of thing because you know that's what I knew really well and that's really the only episode where I was able to like kind of do it without taking notes and it kind of shows uh, to be honest the uh, the preparation for the first episode was lacking and so it kind of wanders a little bit and the sound quality isn't so great but that's okay I learned and got better as I went on <laughs> well as a listener it's it just sounds like you're just like this pro like this guy knows his stuff obviously so I'm just gonna do whatever he says <laughs> I, I like I like getting that feeling so so now knowing a little bit more about your background that totally makes sense why I was why I was feeling that so yeah so what I'm curious about and I just want to clarify you were at vcom and you did your grad school and then you went to med school at basically vcom the DO school that's really close to it? Are they are they associated? They have this really weird relationship with Virginia Tech where at first, like, VCOM was supposed to be Virginia Tech's medical school, but then Virginia Tech was like, mm, I don't know about you guys. And then they started their own uh, medical school and VCOM just kind of became like the redheaded stepchild that happens to be right next door to <laughs> to Virginia Tech. But it's okay. Um, they VCOM's been producing um, really high quality clinicians. Uh, the, ma- the majority of people who go to that school tend to do uh, primary care specialties. Like I'm doing pediatrics and it's, it's great. I absolutely loved it there. I love the people there and I had a ton of fun when I was there. Awesome. Well, let's dive into it. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what your experience was like when you got into medical school and maybe like the first few days or first few weeks of medical school, what that was like for you. Sure. So in the first few days of medical school, I was like feeling pretty confident because I was like, you know, I worked hard to get here and and I, I feel like I paid my dues and everything. So I should be fine. And I remember studying for, we had a immunology test like within the first week or two. And I was like freaking out internally because I'd never learned about immunology. And like when your classes first start up, they come at you at such a fast pace. And so I was internally freaking out for the span of about like, probably like a day or two. And then I ended up just like walking outside and there's this like nice little patio uh, at my school where some people will study outside when the weather's nice. And and I saw this group of people who were studying immunology and they were my classmates. And so I just kind of tiptoed over and I was like, hey guys, uh, what what you doing? And they were like, oh, well, we're kind of starting this uh, informal study group. Um, and I was like, well, could I could I join? And uh, they, of course, like were fantastic people and welcomed me in. And uh, that really became my study group that I um, that I worked with throughout the first two years. And um, we just had a lot of fun together and made a lot of memories. And we were also on the grind from pretty much uh, the first week onward. We all kind of had like the same um, mentality about, you know, we're taking this really seriously. We're professional students at this point and, and we want to do as well as we can. So we, you know, took our time studying in the group seriously, but we were also able to have fun simultaneously. So. It worked out great. I have a few thoughts on that. You know, it's interesting when you get into med school, it's like high school all over again for some people, you know, trying to find your little group, not feeling like a loser. And then just like the power of having a group that you can study with. I think there's a lot to be said about that. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. So for us, we kind of figured this out probably a month or two in that what worked really well for kind of all of our learning styles collectively was to kind of slowly work through each lecture together. So we would like put the recorded lecture on a television in like a group room kind of thing and then play through it essentially like minute by minute and create a study guide for each lecture line by line. And the way that we would create that is by all kind of like tossing around like, all right, how would we want to phrase this line such that it's 
like optimally phrased so that when we go back to it, it's as concise and clear as we can make it. And now kind of retroactively, what we were really doing was internalizing the material and really making it our own. And by kind of being forced to think out loud, I guess we're able to establish those little neurological pathways that that kind of form the basis of, of long-term memory. And also by kind of like bouncing the ideas off of each other and getting multiple perspectives on on the same piece of material, we're just able to fill the gaps that each other person had. And like you you hear about like the Swiss cheese model of medicine where, you know, nobody's going to know everything, but if you kind of lump all those slices of Swiss cheese together, nothing gets through the holes ideally. So for us, that worked out really well. And and really like everyone in, in the group that I studied with, we all did great. And we got into the residencies that we wanted to get into. And, and we had, again, had a ton of fun throughout the process. That's awesome. You know, I just picture you guys, that TV of the professor's lecture and sitting there and pausing it and, and breaking it down. I just picture you guys saying like, well, what could have this professor, how could he have worded this better? How can we, how could he have improved? And <laughs> his, um, his grammar. His gra- <laughs> but I, I understand what you're saying. It sounds like you're, you're taking those lectures and then interpreting that in a, in a way that's going to be useful in the future, in a way that's almost in your own words and, and kind of delve into that kind of deeper level of understanding and, and you do that as a group. Is that more or less? Exactly. Yeah. And and then also we were able to like draw on each other's past experiences. So like I had a lot of rich academic environment that taught me basic sciences from like first principles type of thinking at Virginia Tech. And so that that really helped from one aspect. But then we also, our deck was like totally stacked because we also had this nurse who had been in the Navy working as an ICU nurse for like 13 years. And so when it came to like any clinical stuff, it's like she was our go-to and you did not, you did not mess with her because she was, uh, she was absolutely the boss of the group. So it was a fun environment. Yeah. Those people tend to really know their stuff. <laughs> yes. Yes. So just to be clear, did you guys actually like go to class and then afterwards you would watch the videos or would you skip class and watch the videos? Yeah. Yeah. So in the mornings we would have like four lectures from like 8 a.m. to 12 and then maybe like one or two afternoon lectures. But yeah, we would, um, we would basically kind of do our own thing during class. Unfortunately, our school had, um, had a pretty strict attendance policy, but they didn't really care if you paid attention. They just wanted you to be there. Some of us would pay attention or others of us would uh, would kind of do our own thing. And then we would all meet up together later in the afternoon. Um, I would usually like work out between when classes ended and when our like group sessions would start up. And yeah. Yeah. And then we would work for probably like four hours a day, five hours a day together. And thankfully we didn't get sick of each other. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So that's interesting because, you know, a lot of medical schools have a mandatory, well, not a lot, it's, I should say some have a mandatory attendance policy while others are very liberal in their attendance policy. And, you know, Rhett and I had a similar experience during our first two years, we had a mandatory attendance policy and it was the same way, you know, some people would go to class, but they would like put their headphones in and they would be studying other things and watching other videos. Right. And, and stressing everybody out in the process. <laughs> Yeah, like, oh man, should I be should I be doing what Rhett's doing? Should I have my headphones in? <laughs> should I be should I be watching uh, Pathoma while I'm supposed to be listening to this professor? So yeah, it's like it creates an interesting challenge both for the school and for the med students. I'm curious for you personally, what was your take on that? Uh, let's see. So I didn't really know better until my second year. Um, basically, in the first year, I tried to pay attention to what was going on in class most of the time, unless there was like a, 
upcoming test or something that I, you know, didn't really feel comfortable with that I felt like I needed to be studying for at that specific moment. But most of the time I tried to pay attention to my classes during the first year. And, you know, during the first year, I found that I didn't have enough of a foundation to be comfortable choosing like which material is is critical and which is not. And it, it took me about a year to really figure that out. And then in my second year, I was able to basically like pay attention to like one or two of those four lectures and then plug in for the rest of the time. And that's usually when I got my board studying done. So I was I was one of those people who like I started board studying like starting day one of second year. And really my thinking behind it was, well, let's just spread this out and hopefully, you know, at the end of the year, that'll pay dividends where I, I don't feel like I'm, you know, scrambling to, to catch up. And thankfully for me, it did. That's not going to be the case for everybody. Obviously, like some people are like, yeah, all you need is two months or all you need is whatever, six weeks. But for me, spreading it out really, really helped. Yeah. It, you know, what's interesting about your situation is you've, from a DO school at VCOM, you know, you need to take level one. So the Comlex level one, and obviously you're studying for that. At what point did you realize that you needed to study or that you wanted to study for the USMLE in, in step one? Yeah. So I had heard about like other people taking uh, USMLE in really in the first year, um, like when the upperclassmen kind of do some of the orientation uh, type of stuff, they'll They'll do some sessions where they talk about board exams. Most of them recommended taking USMLE. And my thought process behind it was, you know, what what's the point of limiting myself by taking the Comlex? Like if there's a specific residency that really does want to see that USMLE score, like there's really no point in me trying to fight that system because I have no leverage in in the situation. Like I pretty much need to need to cow to their demands. And that's just how it is, unfortunately, at the moment. But it seems like with like this merger that's going on between ACGME and ACOGME or whatever the osteopathic equivalent is, it seems like the need to take both board exams will probably go away in the future. But for the moment, osteopathic students are, are kind of stuck having to take both if you, if you don't want to limit your future options. But like if you're the kind of person who you know that you're going into family medicine or you know that you're going into internal medicine or something and you've like looked at the residency program websites and they and they say like we accept both USMLE and Comlex, then there's no need to spend the money on it. But I wasn't confident in exactly where I wanted to go. Like I changed my mind about, you know, what residency I wanted to do like probably 12 times. So <laughs> yeah, uh, like a lot of other people. It's a very, yeah, very, very common experience. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, you know, I, I just kept my options open and for me, it ended up working out really well. I'm just out a lot of money because of, because of those tests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those, those step exams, those can be expensive. Those are expensive. So starting from day one of step of year two, you knew that you'd be studying for the USMLE and the Comlex. Mm-hmm. Okay. So can you help us understand what kind of resources you were using for both of those and how you balance those with your course studies? Yeah, totally. So for the most part, my course studies came first. Um, I had heard that advice like 150 times from a wide variety of, of people, not just people in the administration. And so I figured, all right, well, if I'm hearing it this much, it's probably good advice. So with my study group, we made sure that we went through every single lecture together um, in basically the same format where we're all contributing to this super active learning environment for our coursework. And then 
while I was studying for my courses, I also had used other outside resources, like during years one and two, I used like Pathoma and um, I had first aid as kind of like a, a reference book. And the way that I used first aid was I would preview the material for our upcoming block over the course of like a week. For example, at the start of second year, uh, our first block was GI, I think. And what I did was I looked at the entire GI section of first aid over the course of a week. And like, I didn't expect to really understand everything that I was reading as I went through it, but I just kind of wanted to become familiar with the vocabulary and basically what quote unquote, the boards think is important or what first aid thinks is important versus the stuff that I could maybe not grip onto as tightly in class. And that really, really helped. It, it really gave me just that initial framework to think about the material as it was coming at me from the fire hose kind of thing. That's really intelligent. I think that's a very, a very smart way to approach using first aid because unfortunately, I think a lot of people just think, oh, I, I'm going to read this. You know, I'm going to start from page one and I'm going to read this from the front until the till the last page. And it's like, probably not a very good way to use first aid, but it sounds like the way you were using it is more of like just kind of a, a framework and a reference. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Another thing that was helpful within first aid was there's like a rapid review section at the back of it, or at least with my copy, there was that basically had like a phrase. And so it would be like bronze diabetes. What is that? And the answer is hemochromatosis. So I would basically work with another, like a partner, and we would kind of read through that, that rapid review section of first aid together at basically during like sort of pseudo breaks during our study periods. And just quickly, quickly review those things that will kind of immediately jog your memory. Like if you see them in a, in a vignette. So that was another good thing that first aid had. Other resources that I used during the first two years, I used Sketchy Micro for like all of our microbiology courses. And this isn't new to anybody. Sketchy is, is amazing. And um, I also used uh, Picmonic. Um, Picmonic I used for like pharmacology and then also for like oddball diseases like Neiman Pick disease and Tay-Sachs and like how you can remember the difference between those slightly different diseases. Something cool that Picmonic does is they have these review quizzes that you can do daily um, of like 20 different images from, from different Picmonic cards that you've studied. And um, it basically forces you to revisit the Picmonic material so that it doesn't fall off um, and fall out of your memory from the uh, infamous uh, forgetting curve that, that we all know and love. So that's super interesting that you use Sketchy for microbiology. And I guess that's not so much interesting as uh, expected because a lot of people who do really well end up using Sketchy Micro, but that you used Picmonic for the pharmacology. Is there a reason why you did that instead of Sketchy Farm? So I, I tried using Sketchy Farm and for whatever reason, I'm really not sure, but it just didn't jive as well with, with my brain. I don't even know if it was just like the different narrator or what, but it just didn't jive as well in my brain as, uh, as Sketchy Micro did. And then also one of my classmates was like a representative for Picmonic. And so he got us like a killer deal. So I started using Picmonic kind of probably halfway through my my first year. And I loved it for those specific topics of pharmacology. And again, like those super rare zebra diseases kind of things. So yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because you know, a lot of people swear by sketchy and like, once they get hooked on sketchy, they kind of stick with it. You know, and it, when Rhett and I were studying, it was like, the only thing that was available was Picmonic, you know, sketchy micro, I think started to come out towards the end of our, probably the end of our first year, I think. 
maybe beginning of our second year. So we, you know, we were already kind of hooked on Picmonic, but a lot, you know, a lot of people say, oh, they like the, the story telling, I don't know the best way to describe it, but, you know, S- Sketchy is more of like a story-based story, whereas Picmonic is kind of like a group of things that are just kind of thrown together on a canvas and it's like, okay, this is really wonky. <laughs> yeah. So, so actually Picmonic got a lot better in the, I think in the following years, like I, I think they really revamped a lot of what they did so that their narrative started to make a little more sense. So that, that might've been, uh, that might've been the difference between like your experience of it and and my experience of it. Also, another thing that I'm lucky about is, you know, I finished after you guys. And so by the time you guys had finished, you had started making your physio program. And I actually looked at a lot of your videos in almost like towards the very end of my step studying. Like I was you know, a, a little uncomfortable with like VQ mismatch and, and like heart sounds and stuff like that. And you guys were totally on point for that. So I, I wanted to say thank you for, for that. Well, I'm so glad. I, I'm so glad to hear that. So this was towards like, did you have like a dedicated study period that you started using physio or um, at what point were you? Yeah. So, so we had actually a lot of time off. I think we had like six weeks off or maybe even eight weeks. I, I can't exactly remember now, but we had a ton of time off for as like a full dedicated period. So during that time, I used DIT as like my primary video resource um, that for, you know, comprehensive review. And I also used, uh, like I, like I said, your physio videos for a lot of different topics. I also used the osmosis videos that are on YouTube, um, to kind of solidify individual disease processes that I wasn't hundred percent on like multiple sclerosis and, and that kind of thing. Um, also I think they have a really good video on lupus. I'm pretty sure they had a great video on lupus that I really enjoyed. And then for like the question banks that I used, I started out at the beginning of my second year using USMLE RX. And I finished that probably halfway through my second year. My school also gave us uh, this resource called ComBank, which is specific for, for osteopathic students. I use that for their like OMM specific questions, which I don't know if you guys have ever seen an OMM question, but they are just, they're wild, uh, they're a trip. So uh, <laughs> you're like, you're like doing mental backflips, like trying to figure out like how you would turn like the spine if your patient is supine or in the lateral decubitus position. It's like, it's wild. <laughs> and then I also use UWorld in the second half of my second year, all the way through dedicated period. Okay, so so just to be clear, you really started honing in on step one and complex level one at the end of first year, beginning of second year. And at that point, you started using first aid. You used USMLE RX and you used Sketchy Micro, Picmonic, and were there, oh, Pathoma. You said Pathoma. Anything else we left out there? Yeah, and then during during the dedicated period itself, to make sure that I was like totally comprehensive. Um, I was able to kind of borrow a, a friend's DIT password. <laughs> <laughs> How nice of him to, to, to lend that to you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so DIT, and then you started UWorld, you said before dedicated, kind of like halfway yeah, yeah, about, in your second about year. About halfway right? through the second year. And so I was able to, um, I was able to get through all of UWorld before the end of my dedicated period. And then in the last, I think it was probably the last couple of weeks, I basically just went through the questions that I got wrong in UWorld. Okay. 
And let's talk about UWorld because, you know, a lot of people have different philosophy on how to use it. Some people go through it on random timed 40 question blocks while other people do, you know, like tutor mode. Some people just hash out a few questions and then come back to it later on. How did you approach UWorld? Let's see. I think so by, by the time I started using UWorld, I had done like most of USMLE RX. So I kind of knew how I liked using a question bank. And prior to my dedicated period, I just did tutor mode stuff. But then once I hit my dedicated study period and like I had lots and lots of time free, I started doing like the 40 question blocks timed and basically just trying to simulate the exam itself, you know, which is conventional wisdom, nothing, nothing really new there. Okay, so kind of a mix before tutor mode. And then once you got into dedicated, it was more of like random timed, that kind of thing. Yeah, honestly, I could only handle like a single 40 question block of UWorld in a day because I am such a slow reader. It would literally take me three to four hours to review a single 40 question block. So like after doing that, I I would usually get UWorld done in the morning, basically as like a, you know, I know that this is my... Uh, least favorite task that I have to do today. So let's just knock it out kind of thing. And I would usually get that done like around lunchtime. uh, And then I would take like a break and probably for like an hour or so. And then I would look at some DIT videos and I would freshen up on Picmonic stuff that I wanted to look at. And uh, and then also some some physio videos. And then I would pretty much call it a day. I I think the longest that I studied during my dedicated period was a max of like eight hours a day, but there was no way that I was going to do more than that. Like with the rest of my day, I was just like watching The Sopranos pretty much. That's pretty much what I did (laughs) was uh, was watch The Sopranos in the evenings. And that was, that was fantastic. That's awesome. So did you have any system for reviewing like flashcards or or any other system that would help you revisit concepts so you wouldn't forget them? Let's see. So I think I actually didn't end up using like Anki or most flashcard tools throughout medical school. Like I I had a few like Quizlet decks, which, you know, they're they're all pretty much the same thing that I would use like to cram study some stuff for maybe a farm test or pathology test. Like our our pathologist was super intense and like would quiz us on like which CD markers individual tumors would express. And it was a nightmare, but I really didn't use flashcards all that much. And I know that a lot of people use them and I think it's a great idea. Honestly, like the way that Anki uses the um, uses spaced repetition, like that is a very strong evidence base behind it as far as helping people to retain information. But I just didn't find it all that helpful during med school. Like I think I kind of organically was able to revisit topics by using DIT in during my dedicated study period because DIT is very comprehensive. So I was able to, you know, see it again before the test came. Did you get through all of DIT? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And actually DIT even has a OMM lecture series as well. And I did that and they actually, they were super on point, especially for, so I don't know if you guys have heard about like cranial OMM, but it's also a trip, like trying to think about subtly manipulating the bones of the skull because the skull does move a little bit and like the bones can kind of move in patterns that old DOs uh, figured out apparently. And so DIT has, has actually a, a great explanation of that, that I was able to, to learn a lot from. That's good to know, especially for the people who are studying for that test. Great advice. One question Rhett and I kind of come back to often is, how do you know if something's working? 
you know, because like a lot of times you'll start using a resource and you'll have all these peers who are using another resource and, you know, you might think, oh, this is awesome, but it's, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of hard to know if something's working. What's your take on that? Yeah. Yeah. Actually. So this is something that I have recently been exposed to and through Chase DeMarco. So he hosts the Medical Nemonist podcast, which is another podcast on Inside the Boards. And something that he talks a lot about, which I I don't know how I didn't really think about this, but I guess like during med school, I was just kind of running at 100 miles an hour all the time and wasn't as uh, introspective and self-reflective as I should have been. But really just journaling, like journaling your experiences and then actually taking the time to go back and review the results of your, you know, individual experiments is really, really valuable because our brains forget so much out of any given day. And if you can just write those things down and revisit them, that's a very efficient and effective way to make self-assessments of any kind, you know, not just for studying, but for like, whether it's exercise or meditation or dietary choices or whatever, it just self-journaling can can be extremely valuable. So that's something that I'm trying to incorporate into my own practice moving forward. Again, seems like super obvious, arguably cliche at this point, but I think there's a lot of truth to it. So that's interesting. Let's let's if it's okay with you, dive into that a little bit more, you know, like a granular level. Let's say I was using Firecracker. Firecracker is a flashcard system and, you know, I'm not sure if it's working, but I feel like it is. How could journaling help me understand better that firecracker is or is not working for me sure yeah all right so uh so one basically have your journal like literally right next to you when you're studying okay so that's a that's a granular point and you can literally take stock of like from moment to moment like i knew this i knew this fact five days ago do i know it now and that's one way that you can quickly quickly self-check like okay did this technique of using the firecracker uh, flashcard system work for me? That's really interesting because I think it's a struggle for all med students, you know, looking around at all these people using different things and, you know, it's like, is this working or is it not working? So kind of going along, along those same lines, like, and everybody's experienced this where you have like the kind of like fear of missing out or, or just like comparing yourself way too much to other people. Like most of the time, um, you need another one of your guests also expressed this. You need to remember that like you didn't get into medical school by accident. You absolutely have what it takes to be there. So sometimes it's it's just a matter of picking something and sticking to your guns and not uh, not getting too bogged down in what other people are doing and um, and like looking at their screens during class and being like, oh man, I really you know what they're studying glycogen storage diseases and I heard that that's high yield from Student Doctor Network or something like that. And it's like. No, like chill out, dude. And then also like taking time to think back on what brought you to into medicine in the first place. It's like, I, I want to help people. Like you didn't go into medicine so that you could crush the USMLE step one. Also, since you guys have gone through your clinicals, you you pretty much know this, that like so much of what you study for the USMLE step one is completely useless for clinical practice. And you feel like a complete idiot every day walking into the clinic where you're like, he said that he's short of breath. So maybe he has like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Like that that should be on the differential right now. Or it could be the pneumonia that that he's got. You know? <laughs> so funny. Yeah. 
Oh, you're bringing back some bad memories for me, man. <laughs> well, well, but like I, during my third year, I pretty much felt like an idiot on a daily basis, even though I, you know, studied really, really hard and, and all of that. It's just like, you need to remember that a lot of what you're going to do is based around the assumption that common things are common, right? And you need to have those basics down first before you start thinking about the advanced, rare type of stuff. And it's much more important during, especially during your third year, to hone in on your ability to to keep up with the medical team, to know what's going on with your patient, and to be able to communicate what's going on with your patient to your team and also to the patient, and also to you know spend time with your patient and, and learn about them and realize that you're not going to have nearly as much time in the patient's room as you advance in your training. This is the time when you can really, really, really get to know your patients is as a medical student when you have all this all this freedom. Although when you transition from being in class to being in the clinics or being on the wards, it's going to feel like you have no more time anymore because your schedule isn't your own. But Really, like when your seniors tell you, like, you actually do have a lot of time, they're not lying to you. It's just you don't feel like you have a lot of time. And so, I don't know. I, I don't know if that will be helpful or or just a complete uh, nuisance for people's ears, but that's my soapbox for today. <laughs> no, I think that's awesome. Yeah, I think a lot of times as first and second year students, you're so focused on step one and doing well on that or, or the complex level one. And sometimes when you hear things about third year, you're like, yeah, okay, I appreciate that. But uh, just like, just so nervous. I'm out of my mind nervous about uh, step one. But I think the reality is that that can be super comforting. Just remembering what you're actually doing. You're not, uh, you didn't go to med, med school to become a professional test taker. You came to become a doctor that can take care of patients. And, and I think that's important to revisit regularly, especially with just the stress that comes with trying to do well. So you mentioned that during third year, you felt like a complete idiot, though you studied really well for step one and Comlex level one. So, so let's dive back into that and, and tell us about like how that actually went. Like how did your scores turn out and, and what was that experience like? Sure. Yeah. So I ended up doing like really, really well on both the USMLE and the Comlex. So I, on USMLE step one, um, I got a 260 and on the Comlex, I got an 880, which was crazy. Like I never expected to be doing that well on any standardized test ever. Like I didn't study in high school and so I never did well on a standardized test in high school. And then, you know, kind of started taking school seriously in college and then in med school, like I was really focused and, and put in the work and, and it, paid off. Like I, I don't, I've never thought that I'm this crazy smart person or, or anything like that. I know that I, that I worked hard and then I almost in a way like kind of lucked into a, into a group that really, really helped me to perform at my absolute peak during a critical time in my learning life. Those are incredible scores. So first off, congrats. I think that says a lot about, you know, how hard you worked and obviously the strategies that you chose worked for you. So that's awesome. You know, I, I pulled up this chart on Google about a comparison of USMLE step one scores and Comlex level one scores. And it's really interesting because you think of a 260 and it's like, holy cow, that's an incredible score on, you know, on step one. But just to give our users a sense of the equivalent, that's about a 655-ish or so on Comlex level one. So a 785 on Comlex level one is the equivalent of a 290 on step one. And so Greg got an 880 
<laughs> which is off the charts. Like it's not even on the charts. It's ridiculous. So basically, Greg missed probably one question on his Comlex test. Maybe he got a perfect score. And if I were to guess that that question that he missed was likely one of the the practice questions that they were testing out and ended up throwing out anyways. It was probably the, is this pneumonia or is this interstitial pulmonary fibrosis kind of thing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, like I, I, as I was going through both of those tests, I was overthinking stuff a lot. And, and eventually I just got too tired to overthink it and just, you know, went, went with my initial gut reaction. And honestly, like, again, the, when you're applying for a residency, like literally no one talked about scores or anything like all that people wanted to talk to me about was the podcast and then like you know some of the other stuff that i did like some of the volunteering that i did and stuff like that which if you have a habitat for humanity i just want to put a plug in for that that's a that's a wonderful organization to do some work for anyway so whether it doesn't matter if you get in like the 95th percentile versus the 90th percentile or whatever for these tests like it really just residency programs just don't really want you to be like in the like fifth percentile or the ninth percentile kind of thing. Like, but you really don't have to be like all way, way up there because at a certain point there's like diminishing marginal returns in a way where it just doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It's a good perspective to have. This podcast is really focused on step one. And so I hope that our users can take your words to heart because there might be too much emphasis on how important the test is when, you know, we're here to be doctors. And it's it's really good to, to think about that. And there's more to medicine than just step one or complex level one. And I think the, the activities that we engage in throughout medical school are really what set us apart and make us an interesting applicant for a residency program. So it's, it's, it's good to have that holistic approach for sure. Amen, brother. So one last question. Well, I guess I want to backtrack for a second. Did you use MBMEs at all when you were studying? Oh, yeah. So I used uh, the NBMEs and then there's the osteopathic equivalent, uh, the NBOME, I think. And I use them as kind of like benchmarks. So I think I did like three of each, like beginning, middle and end, I want to say it might have been a little bit more than that. And they kind of tracked with my with my performance um, based off of the UWorld self-assessment and stuff like that. So, And based off of like the percentiles that UWorld was giving me, they kind of tracked with my performance. The first one that I did, I think I got like a, the equivalent of like a 235 or something like that. And that was, again, my, my baseline for my dedicated period. And then my scores went way up from there. So Awesome. Yeah, that seems to be pretty consistent with, you know, most of the people we interview. And, you know, my experience personally, and probably Rhett's as well, those tests, especially that, you know, I can't speak to the Comlex, but especially for USMLE Step 1, I felt like the, the MBMEs were pretty good indicators of, you know, my actual test score. So that's good to hear. Okay, awesome. So congrats again. You obviously did very well. And now you're in residency, the residency of your choice, which is awesome. So looking back, maybe could you just share with our users or our listeners, you know, any parting words of advice that you'd give to someone who's kind of in the first or second year boat and studying for step one or complex level one? Yeah. So the piece of advice or eight, several pieces of advice that I would give you would be to reiterate that you got into medical school because you're very smart. Like, don't doubt that. Pretty much everyone experiences uh, imposter syndrome. If you're having difficulty with your mental health, like if you recognize signs of depression and burnout in yourself, people say this over and over again, but just reach out to somebody and it will make your life a whole lot better. 
you definitely need to keep your nose to the grindstone. You need to be focused. You need to take your studies seriously. And unfortunately, we still need to play this game of trying to do as best as we can on standardized tests. But at the end of the day, your USMLE step score doesn't define who you are, like not even close. When I'm talking to people uh, day in and day out, like they don't care what step score I got. They want to know, can you tell me what's wrong with me? And what can we do to, to fix this? And you're here for a reason. You're here to do great things and just try not to lose sight of that. Excellent advice. Thanks again, Greg. We really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you guys so much for, for having me. This has been a blast. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to go to our website at physio.com to check out our growing library of free Step 1 videos. You can also find our physio group on Facebook to join our growing community of students preparing for Step 1. If you've been enjoying the episodes and have been getting value from the content, here are three easy ways that you can support us. One, press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. Two, leave us a review. To do that, just go to physio.com slash podcast. Three, find your friends who are in medical school or interested in medical school and tell them about the podcast. Thanks for listening and join us next time.